Hi, I'm Jackie Castle. I'm the Editor-in-Chief for Sexually Transmitted Infections Journal, introducing this podcast on domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Um, I'm Jean Fader. I'm a uh, general practitioner by a trade and I'm a domestic violence researcher at the University of Bristol. Hi, I'm Neha Pathak. I'm a specialty trainee in sexual and reproductive health and a Wellcome Trust Clinical PhD Fellow at UCL. Domestic violence and intimate partner violence have become a really live topic in sexual health and we've recently published a number of articles in this field from Jean and Neha's team. So, um, Jean and Neha, I'd like to ask you, domestic violence, why has it emerged as such a big topic? Why is it so important? So, domestic violence, of which intimate partner violence is a, a part, um, because domestic violence is abuse from um, another adult within, within your family, is a violation of human rights, a major violation of human rights that's that's very common. Over one in four um, women um, in, in the UK have experienced domestic violence in their lifetime. Um, it's a real issue for health services because it has a devastating impact on health and their long-term um, mental health consequences and their long-term physical health, particularly gynecological consequences from, um, from domestic violence. So it's definitely something that needs to uh, be part of the, the business of, of healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Jean. It's really shocking when you hear figures like two women die a week from domestic violence. And I think it being addressed in healthcare reflects a bigger change in us understanding there are lots of social determinants of health and to provide good healthcare, you need to address those as well. And is it only an issue for women? No, it, it's an issue for men as well. And um, men can be victims of, of domestic violence. Uh, it's less common uh, among men, although it, it's still not, not uncommon. I think one in seven men experience some form of domestic violence in their lifetime. The big difference, and this isn't in any way to minimize men as victims, but the big difference is that um, violence against women tends to be more severe tends to have more severe health consequences. And when it comes to sexual violence, is much more common than, than, than sexual violence against men within their relationships. Can you tell us about your programme of research, which um, has been going for some time now? How did it begin and how has it grown into the sexual health clinic setting? So our research around domestic violence started within if you like, my own backyard as a GP, because it was clear to me that we were not recognizing our patients who were experiencing domestic violence, and that's female and male patients experiencing domestic violence, and we were not able to therefore deal with the health consequences in an informed way. So if a woman presented with, with anxiety and we didn't understand that she was being coerced and, and raped at home, um, we, even on a clinical level, would, are unable to, to manage that as, as good doctors. So we developed a training and support program for general practice to train general practice teams or all clinicians in the team as well as admin staff and give them a direct referral route into where the expertise lies around domestic violence and its response, which is the, the third sector, the, the voluntary sector, um, which um, had become 
quite effective in managing and supporting women, but they themselves perceived healthcare as being rather cut off and, and ignorant, if you like, of, of what was happening to their patients. So this was a, a program called IRIS, um, Identification Referral to Improve Safety, which we trialed in a, in a cluster randomized trial in Hackney and showed that to our, I guess, slight surprise that you could have quite a large impact on the asking of patients about abuse. And without asking, um, survivors of domestic violence usually do not want to disclose and certainly not disclose to doctors and nurses. And you could also make a substantial increase from a very low baseline of referral into the specialist sector where women can benefit from advocacy. And that was the beginning of, of, of the IRIS program, which now is, is commissioned in, in 33 different areas um, around England and Wales. And the big question for us, and I'm going to hand this over to Nat, <laughs> is could that model of training and support and a direct referral route also work in other healthcare settings, specifically could it work within sexual health clinics? And that's really where Iris Advice came from, the idea that perhaps rather than reinventing the wheel for other specialties or other areas of healthcare, maybe we just need to adapt something that is clearly working in general practice. And sexual health seemed like somewhere that would fit because of some of the parallels. You develop quite trusting relationships with your patients you see them often again and again in the same clinic you're discussing intimate things anyway um and i think we definitely found in the papers that we've published in bmj sti that it can be adapted for this setting it does lend itself well to having that training and that's really important because gynecological problems sexual health problems are some of the most biggest and persistent differences that you see in the healthcare between women experiencing violence and women not experiencing violence. So as you say, you've, you've published um, much of this research in STI journal, including in fact your um, educational article. So just to summarise um, for our readers, what have you learned about how domestic violence can be addressed specifically in the sexual health setting? Well, I think the standout thing to me as a sexual health doctor has always been, if you don't ask, you just don't know. And asking about it isn't where it should stop. You need to ask, be ready for the answer, be ready to validate to those women that it's that they are being believed and then have a proper referral pathway in place. And I think our articles reflect that a referral pathway can be developed in the local networks and certainly in the Bristol section where I headed up the research it's really great to see that three years on there's still a strong referral pathway between the sexual health services and domestic violence services so it's not only feasible but it's sustainable with not a huge amount of economic input. And how did um, that work from a sort of provider and staff perspective? Because um, clearly it's, a, it's another thing to do. The qualitative article captures some discussions with the staff, varying from doctors to nurses to receptionists who are all involved in the Bristol pilot. And overall, it was well received and 
people were really engaged and pleased to have the training. But it definitely pulls out some areas where maybe we need to think a bit more carefully about how to support people. I think a big concern was um, the possibility of adding time, but that's where having a strong referral pathway to experts really helps because they take the time to take on the case in detail, which can then relieve the doctor or nurse from having to go into too much depth. It highlights that they're there to identify the problem but not manage the whole thing alone. It's very difficult to to ask the question if you know that that you're going to be then um, the primary responsible person for dealing with it as a professional. If you know that you can refer for support, it gives you those extra degrees of freedom to ask. And I think the two things are very related. Training clinicians, whether they're sexual health clinicians or any others, to ask without giving them the possibility of referral is, um, I, I think, one would be on a hiding to nothing. So that the model integrates this, the, the training around asking and the referral. Now, one of the paradoxes from our findings um, in this study is that a minority of the uh, patients who disclosed actually wanted to be referred. And that's actually true in general practice as well. So even though the the sexual health doctor or, or specialist or advisor does have that potential to refer, it doesn't mean that they aren't still going to be involved in responding to, to that patient. So I think there's a, we don't want to pretend that this is completely straightforward and that, that the relationship that's struck up between the, um, the clinician and the patient is probably still really important for, for, for the survivor of, of domestic violence. And I think the qualitative article captures that with the quote from one of the staff members where they actually reported the patients welcomed being asked about it even if they hadn't been involved in an incident of domestic abuse themselves and that there's a sense that people really appreciate that sexual health practitioners are taking this on and it can develop a relationship beyond the actual issue of domestic violence and abuse. So, and that, that's a, a professional report. What, what do you know about clients and patients' uh, youth and experiences more generally and specific issues for sexual minority groups um, who, of course, we see many of in sexual health settings? So, so we don't have specific data on the, um, the, the patients of, of sexual health clinics. Um, but what we do have, and this is partly through systematic reviewing we've done around um, women's experiences as patients and expectations of their doctors in relation to domestic violence, is that there is actually quite a strong expectation and often disappointment that doctors will ask uh, about abuse. And spontaneous disclosure is, is really difficult. It's one of the most difficult and stigmatizing issues to to talk about when it, when you're experiencing it. So I've got no reason to think that the patients who you see within sexual health clinics are different from the sort of generality of patients who, you know, wish, wish to be asked and wish to be asked, particularly when they're in a consultation, which is anyway dealing with um, difficult issues like, like sexual health. And there's something about the, the expertise of sexual health um, clinicians that, that I think lends itself 
you know, really well to being able to ask sensitively, compassionately, as if they want to know the answer uh, about um, a domestic violence. And that leads right into what you're saying about LGBTQ communities. Sexual health practitioners are compassionate and expert communicators with these minority groups. And although there isn't much evidence on violence and abuse for them, they'll be really well placed to be able to support them and identify it within those groups. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that um, the editorial by Lucy and Tracy Masters talks about the the, the challenges of um, the challenges of budgets and particularly at the moment, time of austerity. How can health practitioners and service providers get it right, given that often the budgets for supporting um, survivors of domestic violence are really under considerable pressure? What we've done within um, IRIS, within primary care, is, and we're now doing this with a social enterprise called Iris Eye, um, is we developed a, a commissioning package which could be pitched to commissioners um, to provide the service. Um, and, and that service would be the training of, of frontline clinicians in, in general practice and the referral pathway and some funding for the domestic violence advocacy. And even in this very, very cold economic climate, we have you know, been successful in getting commissioned. It's also true that we, some of the areas that have commissioned it haven't chosen to carry on commissioning it after two or three years. So it's, I think it's a constant struggle. But my pitch to sexual health um, providers is, I would say this could be in collaboration with RSI, is we develop a, a commissioning package, which as Na has already said, is it's not it's not big bucks. I mean, I know that every additional cost to a commissioner is painful, but it's it's a relatively cheap um, intervention. And that we we then, with Iris Advise, pitch it to commissioners um, on a kind of local level in the way that we have had, had we've done with Iris. Now, there is a new domestic violence bill that's going to come to Parliament. My hope is that within that, there will be some allocation of national additional monies commission this sort of linkage between um, the health service and uh, the domestic violence sector. I, I can't promise that's going to happen, but I think there are some signs that, that there's some recognition at the level of the Department of Health that this is something that needs to be done and can't just be left to the um, vagaries, <laughs> I say that in a respectful way, that the, the pressures of local commissioning. And that would be definitely part of a, the much greater recognition we're seeing of um, mental health as a as a health priority. So I'm sure that would be very welcome. So thinking about the role of professional organisations, um, clearly RCGP, BASH, um, gynaecology, all these specialties where this is a, a, an important issue and an opportunity to intervene. What do you think that the professions can and should be doing? I think it's really heartening to see how BASH, the RCOG and the FSRH have got behind this issue because when you're working on the front line you want to know that you're representing an organisation that has similar beliefs and values and the BASH guidance is a great demonstration that it is being treated as a priority. I think 
continuing to raise awareness, discussing it at conferences is a really simple way of engaging the huge body of doctors that are involved. I mean, my my I mean, my addition to that is I think that's spot on. Is I think the Royal Colleges and national organisations like Bash have a responsibility to ensure the training around domestic violence gets hardwired into postgraduate curricula. I mean, it's happening already up to a point. And actually, the RCOG has been an absolute leader on this. The RCOG was the first college that took this issue seriously. Um, but but the, there has to be continuing um, development of, of the curriculum so that it becomes not a sort of marginalized issue, but is seen near 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 the heart of, of clinical practice and and i think all the colleges are you know in in a fit place to do that but they need to prioritize it more i mean there is a campaigning side that colleges and national organizations have as well and i think again with the the coming of, of the new bill I, i'm looking to these colleges and national organizations to, to campaign for a, a greater recognition um of the healthcare response to to domestic violence as a sexual and reproductive health trainee, I'm already seeing the changes in our postgraduate curriculum that's responding to this research. And we're talking about it as trainees will be the leaders of the future. So I think if we can maintain that enthusiasm, then we'll definitely see some long term changes. Yeah, it's it's really great to see um, such a join up between practitioners and research groups and, uh, and professions in, in such an exemplary way for such a neglected and important issue. And we've been delighted at the journal that you brought this cluster of papers, which I strongly encourage listeners to read um, to the journal. It's great to have such a resource for our practitioners out there. Yeah.